0: Welcome to episode 57 of This Week in Legal Blogging, presented by LexBlog. I am your host, Bob Ambrogi, and LexBlog, of course, is home to the world's largest community of legal bloggers and an industry leading provider of professional blogs and turnkey digital publishing solutions to lawyers and the world's largest law firms for more than 17 years. Today, we're broadening our perspective a bit, not focusing specifically on a legal blog or a legal blogger, but rather on a journalism project devoted to reporting on the U.S. criminal justice system. In particular, a new initiative by that project to bring that reporting down to the local level. My guest is Susan Chira, longtime editor and reporter at the New York Times, and now editor in chief of the Marshall Project. A double Pulitzer Prize winning nonprofit news organization that seeks to create and sustain a sense of national urgency about the U.S. criminal justice system. Uh, in November, the Marshall Project announced plans to launch a criminal justice news operation in Cleveland, Ohio, focused on reporting and exposing abuses in the criminal justice system there. This is the Marshall Project's first initiative aimed at expanding investigative journalism on the local level, and it's the first of what is intended to be multiple local news teams. So Susan, after that overly lengthy introduction, (laughs)
1: let me welcome
0: you to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Bob. Uh,
0: it's it's a real pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I, I've uh, I've known of, of the Marshall Project, and so it's 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 a real uh, uh, honor to uh, to get this chance to uh, discuss it in, in greater depth. I mean, if you don't mind, let's just kind of start at the top. Uh, if I could ask you to describe what the Marshall Project is and what it's what it why it why it exists.
1: Absolutely. So the Marshall Project uh, actually is the brainchild of a former journalist and hedge fund investor named uh, Neil Barsky, who had been paying attention to criminal justice. And he cites actually a couple of seminal books, Michelle Alexander's book on mass incarceration and Gilbert King's book, which traced the young years of Thurgood Marshall called Devil in the Grove, where Thurgood Marshall is a young NAACP lawyer was defending a group of young Black men who were uh, accused of rape, and actually some of whom were summarily executed. And Neil felt that the, this was in 2013, 2014, that there wasn't enough sustained national attention on the criminal justice system. And so he persuaded Bill Keller, who was the former executive editor of the New York Times, to come and create the Marshall Project, and it launched um, essentially in 2014-15, and our mission is, as you said, to look at the criminal justice system in a very broad way. We we do focus a lot of our resources on investigative reporting because we feel that that is very important in examining the criminal justice system. We don't do daily news because there's lots of other competition for that. We, we try to do uh, deep sustained digging into the system, which often takes a lot of time. But we also are committed to a few other things. We we write shorter pieces that when we feel we can add to the conversation. And we're very determined and have from the outset to reach many readers There is areas of a community that's versed in criminal justice, be they attorneys or judges who who follow us and newsletters and articles we produce, but we're also very committed to reaching people lot, who live and work in the criminal justice system, incarcerated people, their families, uh, people who say corrections officers, you know, police officers, etc. cetera. And so from our beginning, we've also had essays from people who work in the system, people behind bars. We have a print magazine that's circulated in 700 prisons and jails that excerpts our work so that people behind bars can read it and we've been intensifying our efforts and cleveland is part of that to bring insight about the criminal justice system not only to general readers and those who might want to learn more about it but people whose lives are touched by it and want to understand how it works and that's sort of a segue in some ways, to our local efforts, which I can go on about, but that's a kind of overview. So we have a newsroom that's growing rapidly. Our total employment's about 50 people of whom about Thirty-five-ish are on the newsroom side, reporters, editors, and a cluster of people, you know, data reporters, and so on.
0: And I think I saw that some of the people on your masthead are, in fact, behind bars. Is that
1: right? We have um, we have a formerly incarcerated reporter, and we have the several folks who had been formerly incarcerated, including the person who dreamed up our print publication, News Inside, which circulates in prisons because he knew from his experience how desperate people were for. Information that was blocked off. So we we do make it a practice to work with people who have been formally incarcerated.
0: Yeah. Before we turn to the local project, I wanted to ask how you sort of position yourself against the traditional media. I mean, you spent much of your career at the New York Times. Yes. Is is there a void in coverage of the criminal justice system, or has there been uh, in 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 the traditional media?
1: Well, first off, I want to say that the Marshall Project is. A nonpartisan news organization that's committed to using reporting and facts. So we are not we are not an advocacy group, right. and many people may mistake that. Uh, certainly, we believe, as I think a bri- broad range of people on the right, left, and center believe that there are great flaws inherent in the criminal justice system in the United States. Yeah. I, I don't think that's a very political <laughs> position. Uh, but mm-hmm. so so what? we are trying to do is use journalism to bring attention to issues. And I believe that when the Marshall Project started out, and in a, I hope, non-vainglorious way, I would say I hope we've added to that, that there's been more and more attention to criminal justice issues uh, over the years of the Marshall Project's existence, in part spurred by news, such as Ferguson or George Floyd's murder. Uh, But I think we're singularly devoted to the criminal justice system and no other journalism. Immigration, of course, crosses that system, and we write about immigration as it intersects with criminal justice, for example. Yeah. But so, what we try to do is many, many news organizations, both nonprofit like ProPublica and for profit like my former employer, the New York Times, do magnificent work on the criminal justice system. Fewer try to directly reach people ensnared in the system as we do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's distinctive, but I also think, you know, we keep looking for aspects that others maybe haven't illuminated, but yeah. there's a lot of great reporting out there. We just yeah. hoping to add to it and to focus on what we can. We're not trying to compete with people who are doing, you know, the latest news development. We, we want to go under the surface.
0: Yeah. It looks like in, it, over the course of your long career at the New York Times, you, you covered a number of beats. Uh, and yes. uh, I think you were yes. most recently, from what I read, covering gender issues. <laughs> what what attracted you to this issue and how much experience did you have or how much exposure did you have yeah. to
1: the issues around criminal justice? Great question. In fact, I, um, I most of my journalism career was not focused on the the domestic United States, I've spent a lot of time writing about and editing international coverage, although I've had bouts with local and national coverage over my long career at the Times. And I was not a criminal justice specialist in any way. But what drew me to the Marshall Project was my conviction. And covering gender was a pathway to that. I had been a senior executive at the New York Times for 20 years. And I returned to reporting because I felt that gender issues were urgent. Um, This was about the time of 2016, and I could see that they were going to be urgent for our country. And in the course of reporting about gender and thinking about the United States, I felt that the United States' long and messy and often shameful encounter with race was kind of the, the most pressing journalistic issue I could even think of and and I felt that the criminal justice is so inseparable from issues of race, gender, income inequality. What I thought of as the most pressing, the most pressing and urgent issues, and so I was very drawn to wrestling with those through the lens of the criminal justice system. And it, it felt to me, I was also very interested in nonprofit journalism. I loved the New York Times. I had a great career there, but I feel that nonprofit journalism is essential to the survival of less well endowed journalistic organizations than the New York Times, which is a remarkable place and due to a lot of good strategic moves is in good financial shape, but a lot of journalism is not. And I wanted to be part of helping that.
0: Right. Well, I mean, that's kind of the running joke about nonprofit journalism, isn't it? Because uh, a a lot of listeners will say, well, isn't all journalism nonprofit these days? But yeah. I mean, I wonder, again, before we move to this to Cleveland, if I could just kind of ask you to elaborate, how does that work? How does, it, how does a nonprofit journalism organization differ from a traditional oh, the yes. New York Times or the Boston Globe? It's been Globe?
1: fascinating. So the biggest difference, you know, at the New York Times, and I was pretty senior, so I was able to get insight into this. Traditionally, revenue came primarily from advertising, and that switched to revenue coming Predominantly from paid subscriptions, and the New York mm-hmm. Times made a big strategic move on that. So that meant you had to appeal to paying customers. You ha- and and that's the, the
0: acquisition of Wordle, <laughs> which we've all been Wordle. talking about this week. Absolutely, <laughs>
1: uh, and with nonprofit journalism, generally it is supported primarily by philanthropy. Uh, there are, and we hope to grow uh, a number of people who become members much as you do, say, with NPR or other public kinds of journalism, where you contribute in a smaller way to sustain an organization, but primarily it's philanthropy. And so we we need to be raising money from foundations and individuals who believe that contributing to journalism is essential. And in the case of the Marshall Project, who believe that contributing to journalism about criminal justice is a way to bring attention to the issues that bedevil criminal justice. Some nonprofits, say the Texas Tribune, also do big revenue generating conferences or sponsorships. We haven't done that at the Marshall Project, but but you know, that's the general business model.
0: Is is there any concern that a nonprofit news organization might be more beholden to its benefactors than a profit making one would be to its advertisers?
1: I really think that isn't the case because, and and I think it's a very similar analog to advertisers, an issue I had to deal with at the Times. You know, we drew a bright line at the Times and we draw one at the Marshall Project where anyone who gives us money, it's explicitly spelled out. that They have absolutely no control or input into our editorial product at all. I mean, and so we make that clear. you're giving us money on the condition that you don't that doesn't buy you access just like advertisers don't get access to editorial projects in newsrooms, most newsrooms. So
0: for 10 minutes, I've been saying we'll get to Cleveland in just a minute. So let's get to, <laughs> let's get to Absolutely. Cleveland. Uh, sure. so, so why why launch this project aimed at you know at local reporting of criminal justice issues?
1: First of all, like education criminal justice is overwhelmingly administered on the local level decisions are made on the local level its jurisdiction is the local level as you know and your listeners know you know the state prison population is the vast majority of people who are imprisoned in the united states you know policing is run by a mayor you know say at a police commissioner um judges are often elected or appointed by elected officials. And so this is something that if you don't have good reporting at the local level, you don't have any way to say are the people we elect to protect us and administer our criminal justice system are they doing a good job or you know what do I citizen think of the policies that are put in place by these people who are accountable to municipal and state laws and elected officials. So the decisions are made there, the impact is there. And tragically, simultaneously, as I hope your listeners know, local journalism's in a sustained financial crisis. So many local newspapers and news outlets have gone under or been consolidated and stripped of all their reporting assets. So even if they exist mm-hmm. on paper, many of them, as well-meaning as they might be, don't actually, they can't spare a reporter to dig in to, we'll mm-hmm. talk about this, you know, fearsomely complex court data for a year. And, and you can't afford to do that kind of work. And so, you know, for example, in Cleveland, although there are wonderful independent news outlets who cover this, beats that used to be assigned by the local paper, you know, a court's beat or a cop's beat, those didn't get assigned, in, you know, right. as resources shrank. Uh,
0: so- yeah, even in Boston, I'm in the Boston area. I mean, the court reporting... Just as a generic uh, uh, assignment has has pretty much disappeared,
1: right? And and you know, so there the resources that used to allow local reporters to really get to know like who are the judges, who are the attorneys, who are the public defenders, who's who's the police commissioner, and have sources that would tell you more than official pablum, mm-hmm. that those resources have shrunk, and so our feeling was very much in collaboration with whatever local entities exist, because we're not there to compete. Maybe we can add resources and and help improve, I'm not criticizing, but, but help make resources available to local journalists and local communities who need this kind of information to make judgments and to expose abuses where they exist. So we... Decided um, that we would try to actually set up some reporters and an editor in some local areas. And we had a few criteria. We we looked at does the area have substantial criminal justice issues, high incarceration rates, perhaps issues of consent decrees or other ways in which the justice system had some struggles? we also wanted to know is there some degree of local philanthropic commitment so that it's not just you know will people give us money but is there a kind of community stake in good criminal justice reporting and cleveland met the criteria um, in lots of ways and we felt it could be quite additive and so that's our first spot we hope to have five news teams, small, operating in the next five years and keep expanding.
0: Right. And I saw that you just hired an editor-in-chief. I guess we'll oversee this. So, well, what we hired country, is that?
1: a managing editor who will run this program nationwide. So he, wonderful journalist named Marlon Walker, who was most lately running the Jackson, Mississippi, a paper, the Clarion Ledger, but has a long experience in local newsrooms and investigations. Um, he will help us choose in concert with our business side, what our sites will be. He will help the local editors in chief, um, who are to be hired, uh, you know, set journalistic targets and hire a news team. We're talking small. I don't want to be grandiose. You know, right now it's uh, maybe five or maybe three reporters and an editor and a couple of business folks to get a news team going, but that, that way we work in collaboration with others. and, and, we have a way to devote some resources to complex reporting.
0: And it sounds like part of the reason you're doing this is is that by having reporters on the ground in these locations over a period of time, they're able to build up those very kinds of relationships that you were just talking about don't exist anymore among reporters and, and
1: it's been much harder yes we hope people will get sourced up as we say in the game and and I think yeah also there are a lot of great local journalists who are out of a job because the news outlet shrank or folded and one thing I do want to stress is that in addition to the investigative reporting and equally important in our mind is a kind of community engagement, where we are talking to citizens, what do you want to know about the criminal justice system? What perspectives do you think have been missed in communities that have often been underserved by news media in general, or their perspectives haven't been sought, which includes the incarcerated and families of the incarcerated and so on. We will have investigative work and we will have what we call engagement reporting that will help us understand what a community feels it doesn't know and needs to know.
0: Again, what some what some listeners uh, may not be fully aware of is that so much of investigative journalism these days is is essentially data journalism, uh, and it seems like uh, you, you've you've started your first kind of major reporting project. Uh, I think you started it long ago at this point. Uh, in in Cleveland, uh, that's very much a data reporting based project. Absolutely,
1: and what I would say is, data journalism is often a real pillar of investigative reporting. It isn't always, but we felt we we've been building up our data team very deliberately, also because, as you know, criminal justice statistics are terrible; they barely exist, you know, mm-hmm. and what and the ones that do exist and are hard extremely to hard yeah, to extract exist. and very complex. So, we began. We'd heard that court system and its outcomes were a real mystery to many. And so we thought, let's dig into the criminal justice court system. And we decided that we would try to assemble a database that would allow us to look at cases that came before Cleveland Colts in the Court of Common Pleas. It's the criminal courts, the ones that deal with mm-hmm. felony level crimes. And we were... Um, going to, we had to assiduously scrape each case. It took months. The Cleveland court system, let us say, was not, uh, this is not data that it's made widely accessible, even though theoretically anyone can go to the system and log in, but it's very laborious to scrape case by case, which we did for months. And then we began analyzing it so that we were able for a six-year period to capture every case that went before this court of common pleas criminal courts and try to begin to examine what patterns or trends or meaning we could derive from it and one of the things we saw and this led to the first installment of this project was that no surprise to your listeners but in addition to questions about racial discrepancies and others that are very important to address. So much depends on what judge you land before. Judges have different sentencing um, predilections. They have different ideas of what works. And so we began seeing the judges as such pivotal players. And then we realized as we began thinking about how, how, do people evaluate whether they think a judge is fair or not? There are very little ways that the public can evaluate that. And so we began looking at election rolls and comparing and no surprise, I suppose, to many people, but lots of people don't vote for judges, even if they come to the ballot and select other officials, partly because there's very little information to make an informed decision. So we said we should point out that, um, Look at the voting patterns in Cleveland and who votes for judges. And one of the things we found in this project, which we're calling Testify, which will be ongoing, is that Cleveland is part of Cuyahoga County. Cleveland itself is predominantly black. The suburbs that make up Cuyahoga County are predominantly white. And the voting patterns were such that predominantly white voters were choosing predominantly white judges who were judging predominantly black people who came before them and that the suburbs effectively had more voting power when it came to selecting judges than people who who were living in Cleveland city proper. Again, there are change exceptions and caveats, but that's one of the things that our investigation found. And Cleveland, like many, many cities has outcomes that I think it's fair to describe as skewed. Even though Cleveland, Cuyahoga County, 30% Black, you know, 75% of people convicted in Cuyahoga County are Black. Now, judges aren't the only actors here, and we point out that a lot of this, about two-thirds of the people that judges are asked to judge are Black, so that who police arrests and who you know, district attorneys or prosecutors charge also affects the population that judges have in front of them. But even from two thirds, it goes to 75%. So there's some skewing that goes on there. So that's our preliminary findings. And I want to say that I'm excited about some things we did with this. We recognize that this work is very complex and audited. And nuanced, and so we wrote a standard uh, investigative story, but we also did radio spots where we tried conversationally to explain a little about how you look at data, what data can and can't tell you, and what those results meant. We put out a visual, illustrated guide with very simple language to try to help people who might not want to wade through, you know, a very long investigative article. And our reporters are having Zoom office hours with anyone who read the pieces who wants to ask questions. So we plan to very much interact with the community. And when we, in fact, developed the topic of judges and voting for judges, that came out of the fact that early on, we partnered with a local group in Cleveland called The Documenters, who are people who are paid to go to public meetings and enhance civic understanding, And they talked to neighborhood residents and they're all like, they wanted to know how, how do I make an informed vote for judge? So that helped us frame these questions.
0: Part part of your series was this piece on what do people want to know about judges? What do, I don't know if you put it as voters want to know about judges. Uh, I thought that was really fascinating to read. Um, And, uh, but, you know, I know you said you're not, an advocacy organization, you're a journalism organization, what do you see the impact of this being? What what do you want to come out of the reporting that you you're You know,
1: doing our here? feeling is this always, and journalists say we find things out and then citizens make a decision. So so we what we want to do is make information that is understandable, available to a wide range of people. So We want to make sure that people have information on which they can make civic decisions. You decide, I mean, for example, and this is, I think, important, I don't assume that people would automatically eliminate judges who opted for longer sentences. There might be some voters who want that and some voters who find that objectionable. I don't have a value judgment Mm -hmm. in that inherently on reporting that information, but I think it's useful information. For citizens who want to make decisions. So that's the distinction I would make is that we what we want is people to have information that allows them to draw conclusions about what's working in their system and what isn't. And we don't prescribe solutions or explicitly evaluate whether that's good or bad. There are things that are, of course, unequivocally right. bad if people are stealing money. I'm not saying anyone is in Cleveland. You know, I'm saying that I'm not going to pretend that right. there are clear abuses if people are being mistreated in a prison or jail. We're not neutral about that. But I think we are careful to draw the line between prescription and information.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, but yet, yet sometimes that information almost seems to point toward <laughs> some kind of a, some kind of a prescription being needed. I mean, when you're, when you're able to show certainly. that most of the judges yeah. uh, are being, you know, elected yeah. or, or white being yeah. elected by the suburbs and most of the defendants are are black and in the city, there's Absolutely. some imbalance I mean, there that certainly suggests a course of action. I, that I needs think that be pursued.
1: our feeling is investigative journalism generally focuses on things that are wrongdoing. We're doing both sort of explanatory and investigative journalism here. So people can decide. And, you know, just to be clear, we understand, as many judges have said, that it's very complex. You have to look at prior cases. If someone comes before you, there, there are many factors that go into decisions and we're committed to being careful. And if I may use the word judicious, but, you know, thoughtful about how we characterize things and and not making sweeping generalizations about a very complex system. Nonetheless, yes, yeah. I, I mean, our feeling is we provide information, you, the voter or citizen do with it what you will. But we believe journalism yeah. is there to expose wrongdoing where it occurs or injustice where it occurs.
0: Can you say at this point where you're going next with your local reporting? Yeah, well, you know,
1: we will continue doing stories with this database, some of which will be data centric and some of which will not, because we have lots of interesting information now. We are going to be hiring our news team in Cleveland. Um, Now that we've chosen our managing editor, we'll be able to proceed to hiring local folks Um, you know, our hope is that by the late spring, we'll begin to really be operating in Cleveland and do, you know, beginning to do more stories. And then we are simultaneously looking at other locations and assessing, you know, which places would be, would be best for us to expand. We have a few places in mind. And right now we're evaluating, you know, um, what resources they have. uh, Does it make sense for us to be in X place or Y place? But you know, we're moving aggressively to establishing more. We're just doing it sequentially.
0: Okay, so you haven't identified. We have those some voters.
1: strong yeah. candidates, but we haven't finalized them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. All right. Well, Susan, before we wrap up, uh, anything else you'd like to say about uh, about the Marshall Project?
1: Well, that's very kind. I I would encourage your listeners to come to our website, themarshallproject.org, dot or for org, and, and just read what we offer. I I think they would find it informative, and you know we. We'd be delighted if you want to subscribe to our newsletter, which is called Opening Statement and does a daily wrap up, a very comprehensive wrap up of issues of interest in criminal justice across the country. So I invite any of you to explore and to be in touch with us.
0: Right, and you can jump right to that testify piece at testify.themarshallproject.org. Correct. Uh, And it's it's a great read, so I I hope people will will dive into that as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate it and really enjoyed speaking with you.
1: You too, Bob. Thanks so much for having me. thanks. Take care.
0: Uh, So listeners, this was episode 57 of This Week in Legal Blogging. You can check out our full library of shows wherever you get your podcasts or head on over to lexblog.com slash TWILB for this in blogging for outlines of each and every show we've done. On behalf of myself and everybody at Lexblog, thank you very much for listening.